Job chapter 1, page 509, just about in the middle of the Old Testament. And as we read, we remember this is God's Word. In the land of Uz, there, was, uh, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going to and fro in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us His word tonight. Well, life's not fair. That's what we're 
thinking about tonight, really, really what we're looking at tonight is, is how Christianity begins to answer the question of suffering. That, that, that's, that's really what we're looking at. It's, it's a very basic, scratch-the-surface sort of look at it. And, and, and let me say just right at the beginning, the Christian answer for suffering is not an easy answer. It still leaves lots of things hanging, other questions perhaps that are not fully resolved. But what I hope we're going to see is that as we journey through this this evening, it is the best answer that there is. Compared to the other answers that are out there, it is the best answer uh, that there is. So, that, that's where we're, we're going tonight. It, it's not fair. There, there's something that I'm sure you have heard often, and probably, if we're honest, we've said it a fair wee bit too. And, and there are lots of reasons for people to say that as they look around our world. I uh, was following fairly closely the uh, situation in Morocco, that poor wee man who fell down the well. How dreadful, how dreadful for his, his family and for that community. And, and, and surely part of what must be going through their minds is it's, it's just not fair. How, how come one child runs past that small hole in the ground and falls in, and so many others have passed it by week after week and not had any problem? Or, or, or why does the girl who finds herself without change for the bus home and decides just to walk, just that 10 minutes, and finds herself the target of a brutal assault, while so many others do the same and, and there's no issue? Or why does one man go into a doctor's surgery and get the news that that suspicious mole is entirely benign, and the next goes in with something even more simple-looking? and ends up with a harsh regime of chemotherapy. And we could go on and on with that sort of tack, couldn't we? And, and uh, have many, many more stories uh, and, and many difficult stories. And, and I know that some of us have, have very difficult stories. And I'm sure there are so many more stories that nobody else knows about. And the very cry of our hearts is, that's not fair. And, and, and of course, we know that life can be very, very hard. At the end of the story of the Sermon, or the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you, you know that there's a, a little parable uh, of, of the wise and the foolish builders, the two, two men who build their house, one on a rock and one on the sand. And, and uh, the, the, the point of the, the parable is uh, that, that we must build our lives on the rock of the teaching of Jesus. It's the only sure and solid foundation for life. But one of the, the, the things that we sometimes miss in that little parable is that the storm comes to both those houses. The, the, the storm hits both those homes. The one who is building his life on the sand, ignoring the Word of God, but, but also the one who is seeking to build his life on the teachings of the Lord Jesus. Sooner or later, everyone comes up against some aspect of life that just causes us to cry out. And, and, and what we want to do just for a few minutes this evening is to, to try and sort of find out wh wh what Christianity says into that circumstance, and, and particularly into 
a, a, the, the fairness or the unfairness of it all. And, and we're going to look just at how atheism understands life, at how uh, religion understands life, and then we hope uh, how we're going to see how Christianity understands life. Very broad brushstrokes, but maybe useful for us just to put some of this in place. Got to say, we, we, we looked at this about 10, 12 years ago. I'm sure some of you will remember every word of it, and uh, although I ha didn't even remember that we'd done it. So, uh, but, but, but we've, we've, we've been here uh, before, but so useful just to remind ourselves of this. And let me say, even as we look at this, if, if you're here tonight and you're in the middle of a really difficult patch in your life, this will probably not be all that helpful for you. In fact, it might be just a little bit sore. It might feel a wee bit uh, insensitive, and I'm sorry about that. Because sometimes whenever we're in the middle of those situations, we really don't need people to try and explain it to us. We actually need people to do what Job's friends did. We're going to say something about them in a moment, that, that they got lots of things wrong. But the right thing that they did was to come and to sit with him and to be quiet and to say nothing for a while. That was the best bit of what they did. And, and sometimes answers are not what we need right in the midst of the, the storm. So in a sense, what this is trying to do is just to sort of shape our thinking a little bit before the storm hits, to try and give us that framework to help us understand what life can be like. So first of all, then, we're going to think about atheism. We're going to think about atheism. Atheism really says, certainly at least a humanistic atheism at the moment, just says, look, this is the way life is. It's all chance. It's all natural in that sense. And whenever it's taken to its logical conclusions, then this is really where we end up, that this world is a place of unfairness, and actually, that that unfairness is not something to be embarrassed about because actually it drives progress. You know, we've all heard that little phrase, the survival of the fittest. And it is the pressures of life and the pressures of this world that actually allow the strong to thrive and survive and to weed out, I'm putting it brutally here, but to weed out the weak. And most importantly, what atheism says, or at least what it has to say, is that there is not meaning or value to any of those situations. The world is just the way it is. It is intrinsically unfair, and that that in itself cannot be considered a bad thing. Because really, if you leave God out of the picture, you really can't declare anything to be a good thing or a bad thing it's just the thing. We've used this quote before from Richard Dawkins. It's a, it's a famous quote. And, and, and in a sense, lots of, of bones to pick with Richard Dawkins, but, but we owe him a debt of gratitude in this. And that is that he has said where atheism logically takes us. And not many have done that, but he did. And this is, where it's, this is what he says. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky. And we won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice, 
The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. It's a courageous position that he has put into print there. He's just saying we are ultimately a collection of chemicals, and it just happens to, to, to work in such a way that it produces this thing called life. And so, we really can't say that there's anything that's fair or unfair. It's just the way it is. Some get lucky, others don't, and there's no reason for it. It's, it's so bleak, isn't it, whenever he puts it like that? And the problem with it is, is that we can't live like that. Even those who are so committed to it, the Richard Dawkins of this world, they, they cannot stop themselves from at points saying, why? The very fact that we ask that question gives us a sense that there is something better than the way that this world is. We've got something good, objectively good, to measure our circumstances against. I, I, I don't know if any of you remember the old uh, Matrix films, the Keanu Reeves ones. The, the, the first movie was the one that you could sort of half understand the rest of them. You couldn't really get your head around at all. But, but if you, you know those films are older now, remember that, that the character Neo is, is living in this very ordered world where everything seems to work, but then he has this deep angst that, that things are not quite right, that, that, that everything is not how it appears, and eventually he becomes aware of, of how things really are. Truman Show, we mentioned it the other week, has the same sort of theme. There's a world around Truman that seems to make sense, but there are these little things that don't add up, and gradually he realizes that his reality is not the reality. And I, I think that both of those films are actually a picture of the person who lives within an atheistic mindset. And, and the reason I'm saying this is, is so that we can talk to our friends. Some of our friends are, are in this position. Some of our kids, perhaps, have said, this is where I am, Mum, or this is where I am, Dad. And uh, we want to try and understand that they're, they're thinking to be able to speak into it well. And, and their, their thinking is, is, is not consistent in that they cannot really live like this. It seems to make sense, but on closer examination, there are things that just don't add up that make them ask those questions. Why is life not fair? There was an exchange that I read up at one time where uh, uh, between a professor who was an atheist and he was debating with a Christian in a public forum, and he, he made the point that Dawkins has just made, that since everything in the universe is random and mindless, the pursuit of questions of the, que the, the point of suffering and so on, they just don't make sense. And, and the Christian professor, uh, the Christian apologist, suggested it wasn't possible to live like they, that way because once you were faced with injustice and misery, we tend to ask why. And, and that night, in that debate, they came to no agreement. And the two of them came together again many years later in a private setting, and they talked. And it turned out that uh, terribly, a few months after that initial debate, the atheistic professor had lost his daughter in a terrible murder. And he confided in his former opponent 
that despite all of his intellectual commitment to atheism, he was simply unable to stop himself asking the question, why? Because he knew that his daughter's life had more value than just a collection of chemicals. And if he thought that she was lost in just a mere chance, it was something he couldn't cope with at all. So, so I want to suggest tonight that, that although atheism says there's just no reason to ask why, it doesn't make any sense to ask why, the very fact that even those who are atheists do ask why shows that it does not have a comprehensive answer to why life's not the way we want it to be. So that's the first thing, atheism. Religion, what about religion? So whenever we're thinking about religion here, we're, we're really saying that, that genuine gospel Christianity, biblical Christianity is, is different than all other forms of religion. Christianity rests on what Jesus has done. All other religions rest on what we do. And particularly the idea that, that we can do something that will affect God or the gods or whatever deity the religion uh, puts at the top of the pile. And, and that's the basic sort of approach of religion. There is a God, and if you do what He wants, then He will look after you in some way, and He will reward you. We do stuff, and God responds. And, and of course, we're going to say in a moment that it's possible for genuine Christians, for us, to, to think of God in a rather religious mindset. So, so this is not just out there. This can be in here too. So now, now, <clears throat> this is, is deeply ingrained in us because we have hearts that tend to suppress God in atheism, or we have hearts that then try to manipulate God in an attempt to get what we want, and that's religion. So religion tries to get out of God what we want, His, his blessings. We, we, we might say a better deal in life. And, and to get that, we will do something for Him. We will worship or, or we will do some sort of penance or whatever it might be. I'll scratch my back. I'll, I'll scratch your back. How does that work? I'll scratch your back. You scratch mine. That's it. You can scratch your own back if you want, but, but that's, the, that's the other way. <clears throat> and we expect that, that whenever we do good stuff, God will respond by doing good stuff for us. It's a sort of a mutual symbiosis because in religion, you see, those gods need us. That, that's the idea. So, so we saw last week, for example, that when the prodigal son came to his senses and began to head back to his father, and there he was, he was trudging all those miles back to his homestead, and he was rehearsing the speech that he would make to his father in his mind. And he could not help but think of his father in a religious mindset. He, he, he knew that he needed to go home. He knew he needed to get to God. And he was saying, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to become like one of my servants, one of my father's hired men. And I'll work in order to make him love me. I'll, I'll do stuff so that he will do stuff for me. You see, he had this religious mindset. It's in our culture very much. It's not only in our hearts, because it's in our hearts, it's in our culture. I don't know what uh, your favorite Christmas films are. 
I made a pitch in our family this year that we would all sit down and watch The Sound of Music. I love The Sound of Music. It's got something for everybody. It's got romance. It's got mountains. It's got guns. It's got Nazis. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just perfect, really. And it's got songs. And uh, you know that there's that uh, song in um, the middle of the film where uh, the captain finally realizes that Maria is the best thing that's ever happened to him. And uh, he makes his feelings known, and she's delighted, and she sings, as she always does. And, and uh, she sings this song, Something Good. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood, perhaps I had a miserable youth, but somewhere in my wicked, miserable path, I must have had a moment of truth. For here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. You see what she's saying? Good stuff has happened to me. The captain loves me because I did something good all those years ago. And good things happen to good people. And bad things happen to bad people. I remember they in my last congregation, visiting a man standing in a farmyard, and uh, not a Christian man, but he said, you know how I think about life? He says, what goes around comes around, and if you do good, it comes back to you. That's what he said. He'd been watching The Sound of Music, obviously. <laughs> and, and, and you see, that's just religion. That's, that, that's karma, or sort of liberal folk religion that we see all around us, we find in our culture, and, and we see religion debunked in the Bible often. And one of those places is actually in the story that we began to read, read a little part of tonight, the story of Job. I, I, I'm sure you know it, but you can see that at the beginning of the chapter, things are going really well for Job. He has a family, he has a sizable business, he has his health, and he was a good man. And he's introduced to us in the land of us, there was a man whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. And then everything starts to go wrong. Sometimes we say, trouble comes in threes. Well, for him, it came in four, you know. There's, a, there's news that comes to tell him that his flocks have been destroyed. His business, therefore, has come apart. The house that his sons and daughters has been in has collapsed and they've died. And, and then eventually, if we read on into chapter two, uh, people say, you know, if you have your health, you have everything. Uh, and uh, Job loses his health too, and he's afflicted by painful diseases. And the only thing that's not taken from him, if you read on, is his wife. And actually, the hint is in the text that that's not very comforting because she was a bit of a pain. You know, if she'd been carried off by the raiders, I think they'd have been back in a couple of days and said, here you go. Look, we're not, we're not, we're not taking her. Uh, you can have her. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, Job is uh, sitting in the ashes, and uh, three friends come around to see him, and they sit with him for ages, and they say nothing. That's the good thing. And then they began to speak. And one by one, they show themselves to be religious. That's what they are. And basically, their message to Job again and again, and they're very good at it. They're very subtle at it, but they keep on plugging away. They basically say to, to Job, Job, you must have done something wrong to deserve this. They must have been watching The Sound of Music too. We know they were saying, we know that God blesses good people and He punishes bad people. 
And look at what has happened to you. What a disaster. We've never heard of anything like this. You must have done. What have you done to deserve this? There's some secret thing. This is where the term Job's comforter comes from. Somebody who comes to comfort you but ends up doing you damage. And that's what happens here. They just add insult to injury because they suggest that that Job has some secret sin that God is punishing for. Now, as we read the scenes, as, as we read behind the scenes, as we read the story, we see behind the scenes. We saw it in chapter 1. And we see that this is not the case at all. God loves Job very much. He's certainly not punishing them. He is allowing him to be terribly tested. And you notice that Satan, who brings all of this stuff on Job, is absolutely under God's control. Can't do a thing without God say so. So, one of the things that we can't think about our universe, this is an aside, is that there's some sort of battle for good and evil, and God and Satan are somehow equal, and they're sort of slogging it out, and we're just hoping that God's slightly ahead. Not at all. God's entirely in control. And he is allowing this man to be terribly tested to show that a genuine believer clings to God not for what he can get from God, but for God himself. And as well as teaching us many, many other things, this story pulls the rug from under the idea that if you live a good life, things will go smoothly for you and good things will happen to you. It just pulls that apart. So you see, what religion tends to do, just like these comforters, it tends to deal with the unfairness of life by manipulating God, by trying to give Him what you, want, what, what you think He wants, worship or, or ritual or whatever it might be, so that you'll get what you want, a smooth life. And the thing is, you see, that whenever religious people get hit with difficulty, there are one of two things that happen. Sometimes both of them happen at the same time. One of two things tend to happen. They're either full of despair because what they say is, well, do you know what? If this is the deal, if, if I'm supposed to scratch God's back and then He'll bless me, obviously I've not been fulfilling my part of the bargain. What a useless person I am. I'm just not good enough to merit God's favor. And so in the midst of their despair because of their circumstances, they find that as well as that, they're thinking, and I'm such a mess because I was not able to call forth from God the blessing that I thought He was going to give me. So they're, they're in despair. So religious people, either whenever they're faced with difficulty, go into despair, or they go into anger. Anger against God. Again, because of that deal, that perceived deal, that contract. I will scratch God's back, and He better deliver. And look at my life. He hasn't delivered. It's God's fault. I'm really cross with Him. What's He playing at? Why has He allowed this to happen and let me down so badly? Now, you remember last week, whenever we were thinking about the uh, prodigal son and the elder brother, we said that, that genuine Christians, saved by grace, can begin to think of God in an elder brother-ish way. We, we can act like Pharisees. And so it is here. We can approach God 
in certain areas, even as born-again believers, with, with a religious mindset, a sort of a legalistic religious mindset. And we see that in, in popping out of our hearts in all sorts of ways. Sometimes when things go wrong, we say, why me? I've said that. I'm sure you have too. And that's religion speaking, isn't it? I've lived my life a certain way. Why has this happened to me? Or perhaps we think of it as we look at the situation of others. Some difficulty, especially with those that we know have been faithful and, and upright. And it just doesn't seem fair. He was such a man of God. He did such good things. Why did that happen to him? It raises so many questions. It, it does raise questions whenever we think of it religiously. But you see, the thing is that religion is not the way things are. Atheism is not the way things are. But religion is not the way things are either. Both atheism and religion don't help us deal with the difficulties of life because neither of them deal with how things genuinely are. God doesn't need his back scratch. It's one of the, the great truths of Scripture that God doesn't need us. We talk about God's aseity. He, he, he has no need of us. He chooses to bless us fully out of his heart, not because of some need within himself. So, God doesn't need his back scratch. Religion. Christianity, last thing, just in a, in a few words here. How does Christianity approach the difficulties of life? It, it, it clearly doesn't deny that life is unfair. It does not tell us that it's just the way it is. It, it doesn't tell us that God can be manipulated so that we will be shielded from the difficulty. Let's take a moment just to outline a, three basic things that the Bible says about this world that we're in. And, and this is, as I say, just a starter for us. First of all, it says this world is broken, and so it affirms our understanding. The, the, the Bible tells us we're in a broken world. It, it recognizes the unfairness of life. Indeed, at, at, at times we find whole passages of complaint poured out to God about our circumstances, and, and, and the sense is given that God welcomes it and says, I know, I know. Psalm 73, David says this, I envied when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence for their callous hearts come iniquity from their evil imaginations. They have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten the oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn on them and drink up waters in abundance. He's saying, life's so unfair. The, the the wicked and the, the, the abusive, they get off with so much, don't they? And God says, yes, they do, for now. And, and the Bible takes the brokenness of this world very, very seriously. But as it tells us, this is the, the, the way it is. It, it, it's not just saying you've got to live with it. It's saying this is the way it is because it's, it's not out of control, but it's broken, it's fractured. Christians often use the word fallen. 
tells us that our first parents were made perfect. They had that perfect relationship with each other, perfect relationship with God. <clears throat> they didn't hurt each other. You think about that. There was never a time when they could say, life's not fair. Their lives were, were perfect. And then they rebelled. And God had set limits to their freedom, which was entirely for their good. And they chose to cross those boundaries. And everything went downhill from there. And what happened was that fractured things just entered all of their relationships. Their relationship with God was fractured. The rebellion stopped them knowing God as they had. Their relationships with each other were fractured. There was strife within their relationships. Even the relationship with the very planet was fractured. And the Bible talks about our world and says it's in bondage to decay. It's groaning as in the pains of childbirth. It's a very broken world. So, so whenever you have a sense that this world is, is, just, is just off its axis, the Bible says, absolutely, you're so right. Sometimes, by the way, people say, well, why doesn't God just, just fix it? Why doesn't he take away the evil? Why doesn't he snuff out the murderer before they, crit the, they, they, they commit the crime or stop the unfaithful husband before he has the affair or stop the hurtful words coming out of our mouths? Two very quick, basic answers to that. One that is if, if he were to overrule all of our decisions, there's an issue about who we become, isn't there? We're no longer individuals. We're just puppets, aren't we? And, and, and we, we don't love him freely. And secondly, and perhaps more significantly, if God is to take away all the sources of evil, what's going to happen to me? Because it's not just that I experience things that are wrong. I do things that are wrong. And evil is, is, is just wrapped up in me. And so if God were to snuff out all the sources of evil, I, I'm, I'm toast. And so are you. So, so we're, we're in a broken world. The Bible's very clear about that. But it's not an abandoned world. It's broken but not abandoned. So there's comfort. Because the Bible tells us that God has not abandoned this broken world. And, and in some ways we take that for granted. But it ought to amaze us. I told this story before. Uh, Don Carson tells a story of meeting a, a young a, a religious studies teacher, a religious education RE teacher. In, in Belfast, who was trying to deal with a very difficult class. And she was trying to get across the, the idea of the fall and of what God was doing. They were just not interested. And so she completely put away all the books, and she got them to make this great paper mashy world at the back of the classroom. She cleared some space, and over weeks, they, they made this great paper mashy world, and, and they, they made little figures, and they named them, and they, they made up stories about these little figures, and they, 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 they had a whole sort of existence going on that they talked about every week that they came together. And then one day she thought, right, I think we're, they're ready. And she says, right now, guys, what would you do if these little figures turned around to you and said, hey, we know that you've made us, but we don't want anything to do with you. You're, you're cruel. You're out to spoil our fun. From here on, we're on our own. Don't bother us again. And, and she said that there was silence right across the classroom. And, and one hard little lad shouted out, I'd break their little legs. Yeah, he swore, actually, as he'd said that. I'd break their legs, he said. And she was then able to say, well, do you know what? That's what we've done to God. 
And yet rather than judge us, he's come after us in love because our world is not abandoned. And you see, Jesus is the one who stepped into our world and he stands at the grave of his friend Lazarus and weeps. It, it tells us something about how God is when we suffer. Jesus weeps with us. It grieves the Lord so we're not abandoned. And more than that, we see the cross. And in the context of, of what's before us tonight, the cross is just amazing because you think of Jesus. If there's anyone in the Bible who doesn't deserve an unfair life, it's Jesus. Isn't that right? Does nothing wrong, truly good. Every time he makes a decision, he goes his father's way. And yet his life was what? One of suffering and torture and death. If anyone had a right to say, my life is not fair, it was Jesus. And he was the one person who could have changed his fortunes if he'd chosen to. And yet he carried on to the cross for you and for me. So we're not abandoned. And I know that some of you know this. Some of you have, have sat in the midst of really difficult circumstances. And you've said to me, but God is good. And he's been with me. And I'll tell you, I'm humbled as I hear that. Because we're not abandoned. Broken but not abandoned. So there's comfort. And then finally, this world is being redeemed and so there is hope. This world is being redeemed and so there's hope. So Jesus didn't just enter our world to be with us in a difficult life, nor did he even enter it to save us just. He entered our world to redeem it don't fully understand all that that's going to mean. But the Bible tells us that all of creation will be redeemed. Romans 8, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So there's a purpose for the whole of creation. Jesus says that one day all the wrongs will be put right, all the sadness will be taken away, and only joy will remain for those who are His. We can hold ourselves outside of that by our continued rejection of him. But we cannot stop that from happening. One of the greatest books that has come out over the last 20 years has been the Jesus Storybook Bible. And if you have one, flick to the end of it and read a little bit about Revelation where God says how it's going to end. And it says this, it's from John. Uh, John writing in Revelation. One day John knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true perfect home again. And he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew then that the ending of the story was going to be so great it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem like just a shadow that had been chased away by the morning sun. I'm on my way, Jesus said. I'll be there soon. You see, that's where he's taking us. It's a world that's being redeemed. He's working towards a world that's being renewed, made right. And if we're in Christ, we're, we're, we're part of that. So how should we live whenever life's not fair? 
I know we've just scratched the surface. The very fact that we ask that question shows us that we're not just here randomly and by chance. It shows us that we've been made by God with a sense of justice. But we cannot think that just trying to be good will lead God to somehow reward us. We're much more broken than that. But rather we hold on to these truths. We know that God will not abandon us. We know that the, the message is a message of God's rescuing His broken world and us broken people in Jesus and eventually righting all of the wrongs. The challenge of the message is that He says to us, come to my side as I do that. Trust me and you'll find that in all the unfairness, the one who really did not deserve what he got will never leave you nor forsake you. This week I came across a little quote from Spurgeon on social media. It said, when life drives you into the dust, worship him there. What a challenge. When life drives you into the dust, worship him there. Is he good enough that we can do that even when our lives are in the dust? Yes, he is.